Turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians, chapter 12. We've been uh, in the process of laying foundations or cultures for the church. You know that every group of people has values or cultures, whether they intend to or not. They do. So rather than just allow them to come, we've been trying to lay a right foundation. Steve shared really, really well last week about the infilling of the Holy Spirit, which I really enjoyed because I had a new infilling of the Holy Spirit. And it, and it was wonderful. Uh, we'll see if it works in, in my preaching this morning. No. <laughs> and so I wanted to follow up on that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's about the manifestations of the Spirit, or the gifts of the Spirit. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to start with that, and then I'm going to get sidetracked for the whole rest of the, the morning, and then we're going to come back to that next week, okay? Because as I was preparing, I realized that in the early days of a church, we have to lay the right foundations. So, now concerning spiritual gifts, brother, and I don't want you to be ignorant, it actually says now concerning the spirituals or the supernatural. The term gifts is not there. It doesn't say concerning spiritual gifts. It says concerning the supernatural or the spirituals. Brother, and I don't want you to be ignorant. Now, you read it and you say it there, see it there, but if your Bible actually is a word-for-word translation like mine is, you'll see that that's actually in italics. It's not there. Which is why we're going to get distracted this morning. First... Uh, Four, there are diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but the same God who works all in all. Verse 7, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. What's given to each one? The manifestation of the Spirit, not a gift. Okay? Now, I'm going to get distracted here. And I'm going to tell you why. I was talking with a friend a few years ago who had been doing some teaching on the gifts of the Spirit from the church background that she came from. And they had this whole uh, course outline that included surveys of helping people find their gifts, included a teaching on uh, that gifts, there's a, a scripture in, uh, where is it, Romans? that says the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. And therefore, they said that if God gave you a gift and you weren't walking with God, you still had that gift. So people who were given the gift of prophecy but weren't walking with God became clairvoyants. And I went, whoa, 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 whoa. Those are, can actually be demonized people. Said, but see, what happened is that they developed a whole curriculum based on one word that isn't there. Is it this one? We're going to come back to that next week. But I want to talk about the authority of the word today. I want to lay a foundation of the authority of the word. Everyone says what they do is biblical. My friend who had taught this curriculum, and, and she actually taught the curriculum 
They were convinced that what they were teaching was biblical. But it actually wasn't. And it actually, not that it was, was bad, though there were some parts of it that were really weird, but it was very limiting. The whole focus was you find your gift and then you operate in that. But if you understand the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, he wants to manifest himself through all the manifestations through you. You're not limited to one. That's what we're going to get to next week. The authority of the word. Steve shared on the Holy Spirit last week, which was fantastic. But what we need to realize is that we need the Holy Spirit and we need the word. We need both if we're going to be the people that God wants us to be. A friend of mine used the illustration. Someone once asked him, which is more important, the word or the spirit? He said, when you're flying in an airplane, which is more important, the left wing or the right wing? Which one can you do without? See, if you're going to actually follow God, you need both. We can't do without any one. So what is the word of God? See, we're talking about what God has said and what God is saying. The Bible is what God has said. The Spirit is what God is saying. You know, some of you know that there's things in the Bible that are very general. The Bible talks about marriage, but there's no place in the Bible that my wife Mary could find a scripture that says she should marry some guy named Russ. I could probably put together some idea that, that says I should marry Mary because there is the word Mary in the Bible. But unfortunately, there isn't Russ. I don't know why. 1 Corinthians 3.16. I feel like I'm uh, speaking to the choir this morning because I'm pretty sure that you guys know this. Uh, sorry. Did I say I meant 2 Timothy? I know that you know this, but I want to lay the foundation for us as a church. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That word inspiration of God literally means in the Greek, God breathe. All Scripture is God breathe. Okay, it's not just a function of some man's idea or higher intelligence. It's actually God revealing himself, his purposes, and his ways. It's not us trying to determine what God is like. It's God telling us what he's like, which is a big difference. So when we understand that, we realize that the word provides us protection. Okay, it gives us a framework that the Holy Spirit works within. God never disagrees with himself. The Bible is what he has said. The Spirit might be what he is saying, but what he's saying is never going to disagree with what he has said. Okay, provides us a protection. And I have my wonderful little illustration here. Would you do me a favor and hold this? Okay. Empty glass. This represents us. 
You know what? If there's the least little bit of something of ourselves in us, the Holy Spirit can pour absolutely pure, clear anointing. Help me out here. I need two hands, three hands, four hands. So the the Holy Spirit pours into us, but if there's anything already there, what comes out can be slightly tainted, right? That's why we need the Word to balance. Is the Holy Spirit pure? Absolutely. Does He speak truth? Yes, He does. But sometimes, in the sharing of it, it can come out slightly tainted with our beliefs, our hurts, our baggage. And we need to understand that or we get into trouble. What we want to see is the purity of the Holy Spirit. I just had to empty that because I wanted to empty the... uh, the jar. Thank you, sir. Here. That's a gift for helping me. (laughs) So the Word provides us with protection. The Word, if we understand the Word, the authority of God's Word, it can provide us protection. What tends to happen is that if we only have the Word, people tend to dry up. But if we only have the Spirit, people tend to blow up. And you probably all have had experiences of one or the other, or both. We need both. But 1 Timothy 3.15, talking about the church, Paul's saying how we should conduct ourselves in the house of God, the church of the living God, which is the pillar and ground of truth. The church are those who maintain the foundation of truth. See, Jesus said that he's the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So who is maintaining truth within the world today? It's us. So we need to be careful that we understand what is truth. What is what God said? Okay, how do we do that? I'm going to tell you real quick. Three keys to determining if a teaching, a doctrine, or belief is biblical. Like I said, everyone says what they do is biblical. Even people who go really, really weird. They always say, they always have a scripture somewhere or a word or something that says that they're biblical. So I want to tell you there's three keys that probably the most important thing that you learn in your Christian life. How are you going to keep me on track by learning these things? and holding me accountable. You still with me? The first one is, is the belief or the doctrine or the, the, uh, the teaching what God said? In other words, is it accurate interpretation? What God said is the Word of God, not what man says. Not what we say we'd like God to have said, but what He actually said. Every word and the whole of what God said. Now, what do I mean by that? 
the Bible is the Word of God. There was a liberal theological argument in the late 1800s that, that began to change that concept to that the Bible contains the Word of God. Okay, now I'll tell you why. what happened is that uh, Darwin's theory of evolution was sweeping the, uh, the planet, a uh, scientific worldview that was anti-supernatural, and theologians had this struggle synchronizing that with the miracles of the Bible, which were supernatural. So liberal theology developed a whole concept that basically said those never happened. But now they're attacking the authority of the Word, so they covered that with the idea that the Bible isn't the Word of God, but it contains the Word of God. Now think about that for a second. Who determines what part is the Word of God? I do. You do. Some theologian who doesn't even know Jesus does. Who determines that? So if something is actually biblical, it's got to be what God said. It has to be accurate in interpretations. Man's ideas are not the Word of God. Okay, I'm, I'm giving you some, probably the best protection for your Christian life. Man's ideas are not the Word of God. There was a shift away from the authority of the Word, and what became the authority was human reasoning. If it made sense. And so what happened is that someone would take maybe a, a scripture or an idea, and they would say, if this is true, then this must be true, and this must be true, and this must be true, and therefore, this conclusion, we're gonna say is biblical but find out that the Bible doesn't say that anywhere. So human reasoning became the authority. You still with me? So first key to something being biblical is that it's what God actually said. Now, does that mean you have to read Greek and Hebrew? You actually don't. There are so many really good study aids uh, online, BibleHub.com is one of them, and you can actually go and it shows you what the words actually said. Uh, but like this, you need to know, is that word actually there? See, that the whole approach to biblical translation for years was the absolute authority of every single word. But as I said, in the late 1800s, that liberal theology began to move away from that, and that it didn't affect conservative theologians till the 1970s. So almost 100 years goes by. And then something happened in the 1970s, and I'm going to step on some of your toes here. But the uh, Zondervan Publishing House decided they wanted to establish a new translation that was easier to read, called the NIV. Okay? And they did something that conservatives had not done up to that point. They decided they would translate thought for thought rather than word for word. Okay, what, what happened? They basically said what was actually spoken by God, what God said, what God inspired, it's just the idea, it's not the word. 
Now think about that for a second. They've actually crossed over the line to the Bible contains the Word of God, not the, Bi- the Bible is the Word of God. Why did they do that? Because in the U.S., the number one market, to get a patent on something that already exists, there has to be at least 10% difference. So the Bible exists. Unless you had a study Bible with study notes, if you just have the Bible and you want a new patent, which is the only way you make any money, it has to be 10% different. So how did they attain that? They translated thought for thought. Now, I'm not saying the NIV is totally heresy, okay? I'm saying you need to be aware that you're not building your doctrine on words that have been mistranslated or are not even there. It can be inspirational. I sometimes read the message. You know, the message is Peterson's paraphrase. Now, it's not a translation. It's a paraphrase. He basically takes the Bible and he puts it in different language to help us kind of get inspired and to understand some of the, uh, the concepts, which is great. But don't build your doctrine on that. I heard a guy preaching once, and he was using a scripture, and the word in it was never. God never remembers something. Never. And this guy preached, and he, he, he made a big issue. Never, never, never. Say never. Never, never. God never does this. Never, never, never. And he went on for probably five minutes. He was a preacher. And he went into this whole... The problem was that that word isn't actually there. You still with me? Take a deep breath. We're still good. Second key. I was way too loud. (laughs) That was my fault. Second key to something being biblical is, does it include all God has said on a subject? In other words, is it accurate in context? See, we can't pick and choose things out of the Bible. We can't build a doctrine on one word or even one scripture. I'm surprised how many books and articles begin with someone's experience and then use that experience, their story, to interpret the Bible. I was given an article a number of uh, months ago in the States, and the whole article was a guy who hadn't been healed of a sickness. And then he read John 3.30, where John says, he must increase and I must decrease, and he developed... it. In his article, a doctrine of decrease. John the Baptist, in a time representing the old covenant, saying, I must decrease, that he must increase, talking about Jesus. This guy takes it and interprets it based on his experience of not being healed and develops a doctrine of decrease. Are we happy if things go bad for us? took one scripture out of context and this article was published in a national 
magazine in the U.S. And I thought, wow, what have we come to? We're developing. See, it, it actually should be the other way around. The Bible uh, interprets our experience. Not our experience interprets the Bible. Doesn't include everything God has said on a subject. How often do we take one scripture and we develop a whole teaching on that and we miss everything else? Let me give you an illustration. And again, I'm going to step on some toes here. I'm really good at that. But I hope you have grace for me. You know, there's a scripture that says in uh, Ephesians that man is the head of the woman like Christ is the head of the church. Okay, and there's a whole teaching that's developed around that about how men are in authority and women have to submit. But you know, that scripture totally ignores another scripture that says the two become one. Now, how many of you know that that word head used in Ephesians is figurative? A cricket? How many of you know that, that the word head is figurative? Okay, it's, I'm not actually Mary's head. I'm not sitting on her shoulders, right? It's figurative. And the word head has three interpretations. It could be authority over. It could be lead, stand in front like the head of a line. And it could be the source like the head of a river. Why do we pick one interpretation for that rather than husband is the head of the wife? He stands in front of. He, he stands before and takes the bullet if it's coming. He's a protector. Why don't we emphasize that? Why do we emphasize the authority over? Because it fit the culture. And because we ignored much of the rest of Scripture. You're talking about leadership. The very key point of leadership in the Bible is Matthew 20, 20, where Jesus says that the kingdom leadership is not like the world. The world controls people, has authority over, but he says, but not so you. The kingdom, we don't have authority over people. If you ignore that, you ignore the two being one, and you take an interpretation of a scripture that fits your culture, again, we can develop a whole teaching that actually isn't biblical. My wife doesn't just have to do whatever I say. She's actually Jesus' daughter. She can hear his voice. Probably better than I can, if I were to be honest. I know a couple who were part of this whole teaching I'm talking about. That's what they were taught. And they moved internationally, and the wife was never involved. Husband said, I heard from God we're going. Wife just had to submit. They're not married anymore. Very sad situation. But there's something about misunderstanding Scripture and not including everything God says on a subject.
So you can't just find a scripture and develop a whole doctrine. You actually have to say, what all does, does the Bible say? You still with me? Okay. Thirdly, the third key, does the teaching or the doctrine or the, uh, or the belief take into account other things that God has said? By that I mean, is it accurate in emphasis? You know, sometimes we can take one truth and make it the whole truth. It becomes so much the focus. If you take a truth and make it the truth, it quickly becomes untruth. Let me say that again. If we take a truth and make it the truth, we take one and ignore everything else, and that becomes our whole focus, we can quickly get into untruth. There are some who have taken the message of grace and pushed it to such an extreme that they actually, I've heard preachers say this, they actually say anything in the Bible that talks about what you do, like obedience, is works of the flesh, and it's people who don't understand grace. They've taken a truth, they made it the truth, and they've ignored whole parts of the Bible. Now, grace is wonderful, but it's not the only thing in the Bible. If I were to ask you, what's the dominant characteristic of God in the Bible? Most of us would quickly say love. 1 John 4, 8 says God is love, and it does. It's wonderful. But what about Isaiah 6, 3? Around the throne, the angels cry, holy, holy is the Lord. Or Revelation 4, 8. Four living creatures and six, six wings uh, full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day and night, saying, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is. They're not saying, loving, loving, loving is the Lord. Is he loving? Absolutely. But is that the only characteristic of God in the Bible? No, he's also holy. See, if we only stress love, we say, oh, well, God just loves everyone. No matter what you do, it's okay. He just kind of overlooks your sin because he still loves you. And we misunderstand that God's also holy. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord but he who has clean hands and a pure heart? Sin cannot exist in God's presence. So how do we balance those two? Why did Jesus come to die to uphold the holiness of God and to demonstrate the love of God? See, if you only have love, you wouldn't need Jesus. God could just say, ah, it's okay. Yet that's how we often approach our relationship with God and other people. Ah, nah, no big deal. Is it a big deal? Yes, it is. Revelation 19.2, God actually says of himself, I am holy. There's nowhere in the Bible that I found that God says, I am love. He says he loves us. He's loving. Do you understand? I, I'm not saying God isn't love, please. I'm saying that we sometimes take a truth and we push it out of emphasis with the rest of the Bible. And then we end up doing crazy things.
So we have an idea that God is loving, and he is, but then we follow human reasoning, and we say, if God's loving, he loves everyone, no matter what they do. And if he loves everyone, no matter what they do, what's the difference between someone who doesn't know him and someone who does? God still loves them. Of course he does. But we miss the whole story of why Jesus came. Why he had to come to redeem us from sin to be restored to relationship with God. You still with me? So what does that mean for us? It means two things. One immediate and one in a bigger picture. And I want to share those with you. The first one is that we need to embrace both the Word and the Spirit. Embrace God's Word and God's Spirit. We need to realize God has spoken to us. He's given us the revelation of who He is. But He's also given us the Spirit who leads us into all truth, who guides us, who comes alongside. I was raised in an evangelical church and during the charismatic outpouring in the U.S. in the late 60s and early 70s. In the early 70s, I was a teenager, and the church I was part of had some people who got filled with the Spirit. Uh, And the focus is often on the empowering of God. Acts 1a says you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and we tend to stop there. I'll be powerful. It says, and you'll be my witnesses. But what Jesus talks about the Spirit, he says the Spirit is the one who leads us into all truth, who guides us, who comes alongside to help us. Is there power? Yes, but the, the focus is not just power. The focus is leading us into truth. So we have to embrace both. As I said earlier, the word without the spirit and people dry up. But the spirit without the word and people blow up. So my challenge to you is, do you take it seriously? Will you study the word? You are the pillar and ground in truth. You're the church. It's not theologians or scholars. It's us. People who have the word. You know that, that guys gave their life so that we could have the Bible in a language that we could read it. Do we take that for granted and let someone else, some scholar somewhere, some theologian, tell us what it actually says or do we study it? The command is study to show yourself approved unto God a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed. A workman, that's us. Rightly handling or dividing the Word of God. And then in a bigger picture, in 1947, Smith Wigglesworth, who was a, some call an apostle of faith, moved in a, in a lot of supernatural. Don't know, but he had a prophecy in 1947, just before he passed away. He died in 1947. And he said, during the next few decades, 
there will be two distinct moves of the Holy Spirit in the church. The first move will affect every church that is open to receive it and will be characterized by a restoration of the baptism and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Just about 20 years later, the charismatic movement and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit affected denominational churches around the, the globe. Said so the second move of the Spirit, I should just read that one up there. The second move of the Spirit will result in people leaving historic churches and planting new churches. There was the 20 or 30 years following the outpouring of the charismatic uh, renewal or movement, whatever you want to call it, there was a lot of churches that were planted because they were kicked out of denominational settings. And something happened in that time frame that hadn't been seen before in history, which was a growth of autonomous local churches that had a different government style that were much more open to the moving of the Spirit, but many also embracing the authority of the Word. In the duration of each of these moves, the people who are involved will say, this is the great revival. But the Lord says, no, neither is this the great revival, but both are steps toward it. When the new church phase is on the wane, there will be evidenced in the churches something that has not been seen before. A coming together of those who, with an emphasis on the Word and those with an emphasis on the Spirit. When the Word and the Spirit come together, there will be the biggest movement of the Holy Spirit that the nation and indeed the world has ever seen. It will mark the beginning of a revival that will eclipse anything that has been witnessed. Now, Smith Wigglesworth is not the Word of God. But it's in keeping with the Word of God. And you look and see, in 1947 and in the decades to come, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the establishing of new churches. And when that, following that, will be a coming together of churches that emphasize the Word and churches that emphasize the Spirit. And that will bring a move of the Spirit so for us individually, it's for our protection, but to be part of something that God's doing, we need to embrace the Word and the Spirit. We can't diminish either one. Amen? Where are you in that? See, we're going to focus on the manifestations of the Spirit. We're going to see more and more of the supernatural. But we don't want to get so caught up in that that we miss the authority of the Word because then we're in danger of missing what God's doing. Would you bow your head for a moment? Don't fall asleep on me. But I just don't want you distracted by anyone else. It's not more spiritual to bow your head, close your eyes, though we do this often. I just find that sometimes, you know, what the the Word of God says is that when we hear the Word, sometimes it doesn't take root because we're not open to it. Sometimes it does, but the cares of the world choke it out, and it never bears fruit. What that means is we leave here, 
and we're going to go have lunch, and we're going to meet with family, and we've got other stuff to happen. And while we've heard something, we've never actually given it a chance to bear f- fruit and to get established. And so I want to establish a culture that we take a moment to reflect and say, okay, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? Not what is this guy preaching, but what are you saying to me? See, too often we get hurt by people who have misinterpreted the Bible, and the result is that we swing the pendulum and we ignore the Bible. The answer to misuse is not no use, it's proper use. The answer to the misuse of the Spirit is not no manifestations of the Spirit, but proper manifestations. And we need to commit ourselves to be those who, rather than being critical of people who've gotten off base, either with the word of the Spirit, we will say we're not going to be part of the problem, but part of the solution. Lord, I want to be full of your Spirit under the authority of your word. Is that your heart? Or have you just kind of settled into, ah, well, it doesn't really matter. It does matter. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're the one who leads us in truth. Thank you that in this journey that we have together, you're wanting to show yourself, to manifest yourself. And we're wanting to see an increased manifestations of the Spirit. We open our hearts to you, but we also want to see the safety of the authority of your word. And so we say, we embrace the authority of your word. Everything you've said, whether we, it suits our preferences or our desires or our culture or not, we embrace your word and your ways. But we also embrace your spirit. We say, Holy Spirit, You're the one who pours the love of God into our hearts. Would you do that? In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I've got some coffee and tea and all kinds of goodies today. I keep telling the ladies we're getting spoiled because I make all these good stuff. Every Sunday. I haven't quite got it. This is only our sixth week. I haven't quite got it in my head yet that they're doing this every week. I come every week and I think, oh, that was just a real nice blessing. But then the next week they do it again. And so it's finally getting in my, my brain. Ah, I get to look forward to this. So, can, can I close with just one thing? Uh, I'm a firm believer that as the Holy Spirit leads us into truth, there is no such thing as a bad question. If you have questions, feel free. Okay? I'd love to to talk with you. Uh, Sometimes in a limited framework like we have in preaching or teaching, we can't cover everything, and sometimes we open up questions that we don't address. But uh, questions are good. The Holy Spirit's not afraid of questions. Jesus isn't. Okay? His actual 
word is still truth. I'm not afraid of questions because I'm not trying to convince you of something other than the Bible. And so uh, if you disagree with, with me, that's okay. If you actually disagree with the Bible, I think Jesus might have a different, uh, different take on it. And I've been around long enough to know that everything I believe isn't always necessarily totally Bible. So I'm open to be taught as well. But I have been around for a few years. And I have studied a few things. And so uh, sometimes we have a, a aversion to questions, uh, which I don't. And I'm wanting you to know that. This kind of format, this kind of lecture format where I do the talking and you do the listening, is probably not the most conducive for teaching. Okay? Interaction is more conducive. But it doesn't always work that way as, as a uh, group grows. And so that's why we've settled into this. But I want to open up the door for questions. So, coffee, tea, some snacks and fellowship. Lord, thank you for your presence. And thank you for the privilege that we live in this time where we're on the verge of the greatest move of the Holy Spirit that the world has ever seen. Amen. Amen.